Welcome to Tisky Sour. I don't have a co-host this evening as Aaron Bastani is away, but I do have two very timely guests for you. In a moment, we'll hear from Sam Tarry on being sacked by Keir Starmer for attending an RMT picket line. In the second part of the show, I'll be giving my live reaction to Andrew Neal's interview with Rishi Sunak. He's going to have to pull off something pretty special to keep his leadership ambitions alive so we can, we can see how desperate he gets in real time. When Keir Starmer sacked Sam Tarry for attending a picket line, it caused a mammoth row between the Labour Party and the trade unions. To try and calm that conflict down, Keir Starmer gave this interview, though, where he tried to downplay the significance of the RMT picket line. Sam Tarry um, was sacked because he hooked himself onto media programmes without permission and then made up policy on the hoof. And uh, that can't be tolerated in any organisation because we've got collective responsibility. So that was relatively straightforward. Of course, so far as the industrial action is concerned, I completely understand the frustration of so many working people who've seen the prices go up, seen inflation through the roof, and their wages haven't gone up. So the Labour Party will always be on the side of working people, but we need collective responsibility as any organisation does. So according to Starmer, Sam Tarry wasn't sacked for attending a picket line, but rather for booking himself onto TV shows without permission and then making up policy on the hoof. Does that stack up? Well, earlier today I spoke to Sam Tarry and asked him for his thoughts on that comment from Starmer. I didn't go to the picket lines with the intention of speaking to the media that day. I went to the intention of speaking to and supporting 40,000 TSA and RMT members, low-paid workers in maintenance and ticket offices who were taking industrial action. Um, at the end of the day, to turn around, so I made up policy on the hoof. All I actually said was that we should be seriously considering uh, matching the rate of inflation in pay negotiations. Now, the Labour Party is not going to be ever directly, even if in government, negotiating pay with trade unions. I'll even give Grant Shapps that. Obviously, he does set the parameters. He does set the flexibility in those negotiations and does set the parameters of what can or can't be offered in terms of, of pay. But ultimately, the government is funding those train operating companies and network rail. I think, you know, as I said before, I genuinely do believe if we had a Labour government, we wouldn't actually have those strikes taking place. Because I think, you know, the Labour Party ought to be the very least committed to seriously increasing people's pay. And at the moment, most people have had a real terms uh, decrease in pay over the past few years, followed off 10 years of austerity. And when companies like Network Rail or train operating companies have come forward with offers in terms of pay that are actually less than inflation over a period of a few years, it means that in real terms, those people are going to actually be facing a, a continued pay cut. And I can't see how any Labour politician thinks that that is acceptable. The official explanation for your sacking does seem to be that you made up policy on the hoof and that policy was, or that, that position was, let's say, that people shouldn't accept a real terms pay cut. Now, you, know, you, you weren't in the shadow cabinet, you were a shadow minister, but were there discussions, are you aware of sort of like a, is there a broader split, let's say, within the Labour front branch when it comes to whether or not people should be expecting pay rises in line with inflation? Where do different parts of the party stand? 
there are clearly people who are sort of fiscally hawkish who think the only way to get into power is to talk about Labour being fiscally responsible. Now, look, I'm fiscally responsible. Sunak was fiscally responsible, to be fair to him, when he brought in the furlough scheme to put millions of people on a wage bill paid for by the government. The reality is we actually need an economic transformation and that doesn't have to be one that scares the horses. You know, sensible social democracy is what it's called. And um, they managed to do it in France, Germany, and you know, many uh, Scandinavian countries without too many problems at all. We have got into a situation where on the economics, we are always playing on the Conservatives' territory. And instead, we need to bring it onto our territory and actually begin to talk about how we change and shape our economy in a completely different way. I think that there is a split, not necessarily around some of this stuff, but around the presentation some of this stuff. And I think that there's a fundamental mistake if people believe that you cannot have a transformative economic agenda and win a general election. You know, you clearly can. We nearly did in 2017. The reasons we lost in 2019 weren't about our policies or our economic agenda. They're much more to do with Brexit and the way that Jeremy Corbyn had been completely demonised by the press. You obviously have differences of opinion with Keir Starmer. I think mean, you told LBC that he's he's got a worse relationship with the trade unions than Tony Blair. Do you think he's do you think he's more right wing than Tony Blair? No, I don't think so. I think that'd be unfair. You know, I have a positive working relationship uh, with Keir Starmer. I was the longest serving member of the front bench elected in 2019. I think the reality is though that we are a fundamental moment of pivot. There are people, not necessarily Keir Starmer, who are pushing for the Labour Party to be disaffiliated from trade unions. They do not want the Labour Party to be part of a federal body which is representing organised labour in Parliament. They essentially want us, in my view, to be some sort of social liberal type of uh, party with fairly neoliberal economic uh, policies. That isn't what the Labour Party is. It's never what it's been and never should be what it is. And I think that that is a battle that is starting to unfold. You know, I have never known the trade unions in modern times to be this angry. I was a trade union officer and official at national level for nearly a decade before becoming an MP. So it's not as if I don't know what I'm talking about. You know, I spoke to seven different general secretaries from affiliated unions and non-affiliated unions, and people are incredibly angry. Because look, if when doctors, nurses, rail workers, communication workers, you know, across vast sectors of our society, even in the past sort of 48 hours, we've seen strike action voted for, I think, at uh, one of the major ports, I think at Felix, though, if I'm not mistaken. Clearly, there's going to be a summer of disputes and a winter of disputes that headed our way. And as I said on, on, on some of the television programmes over the past few days, it isn't about every MP rushing to be onto the picket line. I've seen that some people talked about this being gesture politics. No, nonsense. What it's about is being absolutely clear whose side we're on. Our country is still one of the richest countries on the planet. You know, the distribution of wealth in this country is more unequal than at any time in my lifetime. Are we on the side of those making it all unequal? Or are we on the side of those people producing the wealth? It's a very simple equation. And it's the reason that our trade unions founded the Labour Party. And if people can't understand that, then frankly, they are in the wrong party. Let's go back to your sacking. I've got you to respond to to Keir Starmer's explanation of what happened. Next, I want to show you Mary Cray. She's a former Labour MP. This is what she said on Good Morning Britain. I don't think you defy the leader, um, invent a completely new economic policy uh, live on air and go against uh, Labour's 
collective position on this and, and can expect to keep your place mm. uh, in the shadow team. I think Keir Starmer has shown that Labour is what he wants to move Labour from being a party of protest to being a party of government. And that means being a party that takes tough decisions and sits down and, and negotiates and doesn't um, you know, do this kind of gesture politics. Yeah. But Sam's facing a tricky reselection battle in his constituency. I don't know whether this plays into that well for him or if it plays in badly, but um, certainly... When you say plays in well, just because it raises his profile? Exactly. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's, you know, front page news, whereas, you know, perhaps a lot of people wouldn't have known who he was this time yesterday. Well, is Mary Cray right? Was this to boost your profile to help you fight a reselection battle? Absolutely not. I just felt that the midline, you know, uh, had been crossed, banning people from picket lines, setting up a completely false straw man. I think it was hugely problematic. At the end of the day, I have to think about my own political credibility. You know, I'd had very little support from the leader of the Labour Party in his office in a number of things I'd talked to them about, which were pretty serious. And I thought, actually, you know, the trade unions one have always supported me, always backed me up. You know, I was 10 years a transport trade union official, these are my people and I need to stand shoulder to shoulder to them because that's the right thing to do. I didn't do it expecting to be sacked, to be totally fair. I genuinely do believe that actually that is something that a transport shadow minister should be doing. And as I said, it doesn't mean that every MP from the Labour Party has to run out to every picket line. But clearly, we need to demonstrate to people, to British workers, are we on your side when you take disputes or are we on the side of exploitative employers? Are we on the side of the Conservative government's attacks on freedoms at work that have been won over the past 200 years. And I think people have been asking a very serious question for a long period of time now. What on earth does the Labour Party actually stand for at the moment? You suggested there you've taken some serious issues to Keir Starmer's office and they haven't been particularly responsive. Can you, can you expand on that? Is this a ref, reference to the, to the campaign to deselect you and replace you as MP for Ilford South? Yeah, precisely. I mean, we've had uh, criminal wrongdoing in that uh, particular process. We've had uh, examples that the General Secretary has admitted to me of proven electoral fraud. At the end of the day, I'm happy to face uh, my local members and I've got an awful lot of support. What I'm not happy about is a rigged process because that's completely outrageous and I don't actually believe that's something the Labour Party should be supporting. At the end of the day, We've got a local ex-councillor here who only just come out of jail in the past few months for 18 months for electoral fraud. There are a whole range of different flaws in previous so-called democratic processes here in the past. And I think that from my point of view, when I raise concerns with the leader of the Labour Party about things of that gravity and that nature that could impact on who continues or who becomes the next MP for a very safe Labour seat, that needs to be taken deadly seriously. You'll remember, you were sort of part of the Corbyn movement, how shocked the media were when deselection was ever raised, the spectre of deselection if it was for a right-wing MP. It seems now as if there's a bit of a concerted campaign to rid the Labour Party of some of its left-wing MPs. I mean, you're one example. Apsana Begum is also fighting what seems like a pretty brutal deselection battle in her constituency. Do you think there is a concerted effort from the top to purge Corbyn-supporting MPs from the PLP? I'm absolutely sure that there were party officials who facilitated what happened here in Ilford South and were essentially in on it in terms of some of the things that happened because there's no other way that you would have had people, including the leader of the council here, going around and talking about a timetable for this process to have happened, that it would be very short about the timings of it before I'd had any conversations whatsoever with regional party officials. 
we had completely factional people overseeing the online meetings. We had people who are clearly my supporters not being able to participate. You know, they essentially cook the books. So, yeah, I would say that there is a concerted effort not only to get rid of certain MPs who stand up for trade unions and stand for a more progressive form of politics. who might even dare to call themselves socialists. And at the same time, to block people getting onto shortlists all across the country who, again, happen to be more left-leaning and happen to come from the trade union movement. Two related questions. Does this go right to the top? Is this an issue that, that concerns Keir Starmer and I suppose also the, the general secretary of the party? And on top of that, did the left have any leverage to respond? I mean, how, how can this kind of thing be resisted or do you feel a little bit helpless in all of this? No, I don't feel helpless. I mean, you know, I've got the whole trade union movement absolutely have got my back. And actually, you know, hundreds and hundreds of local party members have got my back here. You know, um, despite some of the nonsense propaganda, I'm actually pretty popular in Ilford, pretty popular amongst my members. And I guess, you know, we'll find out in due course about that, whether or not it's a fair and transparent process is the question that raises its head. And yes, I do think that the leadership of the party will be concerned about this because, you know, if this ends up in huge, expensive legal wranglings, which is a genuine possibility, or if it leads to a Falkirk-style police investigation, then that's a problem for them. How can an aspiring party of government literally allow electoral fraud, corruption and criminal activity to potentially happen within its own party in the process of choosing members of parliament? I mean, it's beyond belief, quite frankly. You've said you've spoken to Keir Starmer's office and they haven't been particularly responsive. Have, have you spoken to him personally about this? I have had a conversation with Keir. Um, unfortunately, it was uh, as a, he was ringing me to tell me that I was sacked. That's the first time he's had this conversation with you about the reselection battle and your allegations about, about criminality and, uh, and fraud. You're aware. I'd requested a meeting, uh, requested a direct discussion with him, and that hadn't been uh, forthcoming. That was uh, several months ago. This issue of deselections is another one where a bit, you know, like the Ford report, which we've been speaking about on, on previous episodes, where it just, it's really hard for me to be relaxed about it because it's just so disingenuous, the media's approach to it and the labor rights approach to it. Like you remember during the Jeremy Corbyn years, I don't think the leadership really planned to deselect anyone. When there was someone like, I think it was Diana Johnson, wasn't it? In, in Hull, where there was a, a, tr- a reselection, which was triggered. That was a, organized top-down. That was some local people wanted to have a go of a different MP. That was front-page news. You know, everyone was talking about this complete outrage. You've got these Stalinist left-wingers in the Labour Party who just want to get rid of anyone who remotely disagrees with them. Big, big news. And then the Labour leadership, I think especially John McDonnell, I don't necessarily judge him for this because I think, you know, they were in a difficult situation. They were pushed into this position where they're like, oh no, you know, calm down with the deselections, essentially, because they were like, this is we're taking too much heat. We can't have all of these headlines about deselections. So they kind of, you know, took a step back and said, let's not, let's not actually do all of this. Keir Starmer, brazenly, it seems, his people are intervening to fix reselection battles to try and kick people out. By the way, only left-wingers. I, can't, I, I haven't heard of a single right-winger who's had any threat whatsoever of reselection. There are about 38 campaign group MPs. I, I think two, three, four of them are pretty much at risk at the moment. And, you know, you'd expect the Labour right to be silent about this. This is in their factional interests. What's so frustrating is that the mainstream media who hold themselves as objective, we just report on what is objectively interesting. When it was left-wingers trying to deselect right-wing MPs, that was big news. That was in the public interest. Everyone had to know about that. When it's right-wingers trying to deselect left-wing MPs, you know, 
I would say they try and justify that by saying this is just democracy, but it's actually worse than that because they haven't mentioned it. This isn't mentioned by anyone. And then you can have someone like Mary Cray appearing on Good Morning Britain, sort of bragging, oh, I think the reason he's doing this might be because he's facing deselection. For the past five years, she was talking about deselection like it was like murder, you know, like a crime. I can't believe these people want to deselect someone. How dare they do that? Now she's like, <laughs> maybe he's only saying that because he's going to be deselected. And again, I expect that from her. She's a factional player. She's just representing her factional interest. But what's so stupid about our, our mainstream media is they'll let her get away with that. You know, I went on TV sort of arguing for mandatory reselection, that kind of thing, when it was you know back in 2017, 2018, 2019. And you would always get really, really strong pushback from the hosts. If I mentioned deselection, oh, that's very divisive. Is that not, it doesn't seem like the Labour Party should be focusing on that if they want to get into government. Mary Cray says that, like, oh, yeah, maybe it is because he's facing deselection. It's just the brazenness of it really, really frustrates me. I can't stand it. Let's go to our next story. After April's 54% increase to the energy price cap, household bills increased by an average £693. But in October, it's due to get much, much worse. Martin Lewis explains the latest developments here. The impact of the spike in gas prices is going to be absolutely devastating. The latest prediction for the price cap is it will go up 77% on the 1st of October, taking someone with typical usage from the current £1,971 a year, which was already up over 50%, to £3,500 a year. And then in January, it'll go up again. Now, that £1,500 a year spike is simply unaffordable for millions of homes and is likely to put around 10 million people or more into fuel poverty. Uh, the impact of it is frankly catastrophic and intervention is needed and needed now. So the latest prediction is another 77% increase to the energy price cap with bills going up to £3,500 per year. That's extraordinary. And despite what politicians might say, it's not inevitable. That's because it all comes as energy firms are making huge profits and paying them to shareholders instead of helping their customers. Centrica, which owns British Gas, announced a profit of nearly £1.4 billion in the first half of this year. That's five times the profits it made a year ago. Five times. That windfall is, of course, not the result of Centrica doing any more work or producing more fuel. It's simply profiting from rising fuel prices. Centrica is, in short, profiting directly from the crippling increases in energy bills that are set to drive millions into poverty. It's money going straight out of your pocket and into the pockets of their shareholders. So what would Liz Truss, likely your next prime minister, our next prime minister, do about these unearned windfalls? Well, this is what she said at the latest Tory leadership hustings in Leeds. I don't believe in windfall taxes because they put off future investment. What we should be doing is encouraging Shell and other companies to invest in the United Kingdom because we need to get our productivity up. We need capital investment. What I would do is create low tax investment zones, encouraging those companies to invest in our country. I think windfall taxes send the wrong message to the world. They don't send the message that Britain is open for business. And actually what we need to be doing now is using more of our North Sea reserves 
to help people with the cost of living. And that's what I would do alongside having a temporary uh, moratorium on the green energy levy to really help people with their bills. In keeping with Liz Truss's campaign, that answer was just completely economically illiterate. As I've already explained, the point of windfall profits is that they don't reward investment or productivity gains. They're instead the result of things entirely outside of a company's control. In this case, of course, a war in Ukraine and a pandemic. That means if you tax those profits, you don't damage investment, which even the boss of BP has admitted. The other part of that answer, which was even more worrying, was what Trust said about productivity. She wants to increase productivity by cutting taxes for fossil fuel producers. Now, ignoring climate change for one moment and how dangerous that is in that context, it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. If you want to increase productivity, you build up high-skilled labor-intensive industries. You don't double down on resource extraction. We want to be more like Germany or Silicon Valley. We don't want to be Saudi Arabia. Of course, Truss's light-touch approach to profiteering is all the more offensive because of the situation ordinary Brits find themselves in. This report on consumer debt is from Sky. Consumer credit, which includes borrowing on credit cards, overdrafts, personal loans and car finance, was up by 6.5% on an annual basis in June. As part of this, the annual growth rate of credit card borrowing was 12.5%, the highest rate since the 12.6% increase in November 2005. Laura Souter, head of personal finance at AJ Bell, said the figures are, quote, just the tip of the iceberg. She said, quote, once the energy price cap shifts up again in October and we all use more energy in winter, these figures will keep climbing. What's more, while some people may still have savings to fall back on now, as they are exhausted, more people will have to turn to debt. So not only are salaries not keeping up with rising prices, but surprise, surprise, that means people are forced to make themselves even poorer by relying on expensive credit card debt. That's more money to bankers. It's more economic instability. I always find it quite worrying when people say, oh, this is the highest debt people have had since, and then insert a date just before the financial crisis. In that context, it was since 2005. And yeah, I mean, it, it all comes before another huge hike in energy bills this winter. So it's, it's no wonder even moderates like Martin Lewis are predicting civil unrest. I hope we get it. It could be the kind of civil unrest that, that saves us from a financial crisis down the line, because we cannot continue this way. You cannot continue in an environment where energy prices are going up 200, 300%, right? In total, because these are all additive, right? If it, if it goes up by 66%, then 77%, I mean, these are increasing by a real large amount and wages are not catching up remotely. And we've got the Labour Party saying, oh, that doesn't matter. We've got the Tories saying this is actively good. And it, it can't go on like this. It can't go on like this. And now we have an ex-prime minister whose main policy is to cut tax on rich people. And we'll be going shortly to Rishi Sunak's interview with Andrew Neil. Things to look out for in this interview. As I say, Rishi Sunak is struggling at the moment. He hasn't been performing particularly well in this leadership race, principally because Tory members still really like Boris Johnson. So if you watched any of that LBC hustings yesterday, the audience were really, really angry that Rishi Sunak had, in their words, stabbed Boris Johnson in the back. Um, so he is trying to recover a lot of lost ground there. Liz Truss, of course, didn't resign from Boris Johnson's cabinet. So she's in a stronger position with Labour members, sorry, not Labour members, with Tory party members, even if she's not in a stronger position with the public. And Rishi Sunak's response, which looks incredibly 
desperate to my mind, is to keep coming out with more and more outrageously right-wing policies. So he's now promoting things like grammar schools. You know, Tories always say this is going to be a leg up for social mobility. Obviously, it does the complete opposite thing. All studies show that what happens when you introduce grammar schools is that rich people get to go to those grammar schools and then all the other schools in the, the area decline because you've sort of funneled essentially, you know, all the middle class people into one school. Everyone else has to go to another one. All the money goes to the middle class school. Terrible, terrible policy. Also, what we're hearing from him, he wants to get tougher on asylum seekers. He wants to leave the European Court of Human Rights. Now, obviously, this is something I don't think we've heard Rishi Sunak talk about before. I'm not sure if he is instinctively anti-migrant. Obviously, he's someone who had a green card while he was in number 11 Downing Street. So presumably, he, you know, he doesn't have a, an ideological objection to migration. But this is a guy who is now trying to appeal to what he knows is a very right-wing membership. He's very right-wing on the economy, by the way, but I imagine he's fairly socially liberal. But he is now trying to appeal to that electorate by throwing out any kind of desperate piece of red meat he can. Clearly, he's someone saying a lot of things that I don't think he particularly believes, but that in a way just makes it all the more disgusting. He's willing to throw any group under the bus if it helps him get the, get the keys to Downing Street. And then what does he want to do with that? I don't know, do whatever the Treasury says, which essentially means austerity light. I think that's that's what Rishi Sunak seems to be planning if he gets into power. Of course, the Andrew Neil interviews have been a challenge for politicians in recent years. So famously and very frustratingly for anyone on the left, Jeremy Corbyn agreed to an Andrew Neil interview on the assumption that Boris Johnson was also going to subject himself to one. Jeremy Corbyn did. It ended up being quite damaging for his campaign, took quite a lot of momentum out of the campaign because it was seen to be fairly difficult for him. Lots of time spent on anti-Semitism, for example. Boris Johnson just said no, and he got away with it. This time around, it's Rishi Sunak who said yes. Liz Truss said no. Let's see if Liz Truss gets away with it or how effective Rishi Sunak is speaking to Andrew Neil. Let's start with your judgment or uh, lack of. Why did you persist with multi-billion pound tax rises this year but it was already clear the UK economy was heading for a major slowdown. Well, this comes back to a fundamental question at the heart of this leadership election. And that's, how do we tackle the problems that we racked up during COVID, all the extra borrowing that we had to do to make sure that we got the country through it? And we all knew that there'd be a bill to pay. So the question that confronted me and confronts all of us is, what do we do about that? Do we pay those bills ourselves or do we pass them on to our children, our grandchildren, and expect them to pick up the tab. And alongside that, we also have to think about whether we go on a borrowing spree right now, whether that will make the inflation problem worse and push up interest rates. And that's not something that I wanted to do. But the problem is not five or 10 years. The problem is the economic situation now. America is in recession. The Eurozone is on the brink of recession. The Bank of England is tightening monetary policy, which means people's interest rates are going up. And you're now tightening fiscal policy, all designed just to make it worse. You're going to ensure a recession. No, if you look at what's happening around the world, it's inflation that is slowing economies down. It's rising interest rates that are already putting a break on economic activity, Andrew. And my concern... Deal with inflation then. Rent controls Rishi. ...with inflation as quickly as possible, because inflation makes everybody poorer. It erodes people's living standards. Yeah, the recession will make everybody poorer too, and uh, will make it much harder to balance the budget, make it much harder to uh, reduce the fiscal uh, deficit. Well, you, you, you talk, I mean, are you wait, really well, arguing on, on. that your economic position 
as the global economy grinds to a halt, as monetary policy has been tightening, there's the right thing to do to tighten fiscal policy as well? I think it is absolutely the right thing to do to so not put be a recession, fuel on the fire of the inflation problem that we already have. So there'll be that, a recession? Well, actually, that's not the forecast of the majority of most independent forecasters here in the UK. So that's not, that's not actually but, the majority of But you're going to make it more think. likely with this approach to the economy. Well, no, that, that they're already forecasting that that's Such not... Such a frustrating leadership debate where both candidates are completely wrong for completely different reasons. So Rishi Sunak is saying, we need to cut the COVID debt, which, you know, we don't. We should park it into the long term, like Liz Truss says. And then Liz Truss just wants to use that headroom to cut taxes, which also isn't going to help us get out of a recession. Well, actually, what we need to do is get to grips with inflation quickly, because if we have inflation that persists for far longer, that's not going to help grow the economy. It's just going to make everybody poorer. And whilst it might make us feel We're good already getting short, poorer, is she? Actually, we end up repeating the mistakes of the past. And we've seen how that is. If you but, borrow tens of billions of pounds, pump that money into an economy, then that fuels inflation and that pushes up interest rates even higher. And that's what I'm trying to avoid. Now, of course, Andrew, look, listen, it, it would be the easiest thing in the world for me to sit here and say, no, I don't want to do any of these difficult things. I'd look, like to give everybody all these nice things. Don't you think that would make my life easier? It's because I genuinely believe it would not be the responsible thing to do that I'm saying that we should put, go down this course, be careful interest with rates our thing always annoys me because carefully, but help there are so many people in society, I wouldn't care about high interest rates. Nobody, Mr. I, I really care about my wage going down. You know, I mean, obviously some people care about high interest rates, but I feel like wages keeping up is much more important than having low interest rates. And you're doing it so quickly that you're going to make things worse. And I wonder what the rush is. After all, among the major economies of the world, uh, who... Which one has higher uh, national or lower national debt than we have? Well, of those major economies... Of the G7. Of the G7? Which one? We're in the middle of the pack. No, no, we're, we're not, actually. Everyone uh, has more debt, bar Germany. No, that's... that's Ger okay, I'll give you the figures. Canada, 118%. The US, 137 Italy, 151 Japan, 266 right. The UK, 96 The Eurozone's 96 too. At Germany, 70%. Right. So Since let's, let's, our national debt is not out of kilter... It would have been cool if these kind of questions were being asked right. when Cameron and Osborne were taking out billions of pounds from the benefit right. system. What's happening in the US? Suddenly, BBC journalists have realised that actually you don't have to cut the debt and the national debt isn't like a credit card. 12 years too late. I don't want them to go up any higher than they're going to be. Mortgage rates in the US are already 50% higher than they are here. The US also benefits as being the world's reserve currency. You mentioned Japan. Japan funds the majority of its debt internally from its own savers. That's not what we do here in the UK. We have to attract e money from around the world to fund even our debt. Even the OECD. And, no, 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 let me just finish on this. Well, hang on, let me just finish. says that your fiscal stance as Chancellor was too contractionary, that you were cutting the deficit so quickly that you are undermining growth. That's the OECD. Well, actually, I've set up a very clear plan for growth. And the way we're going to get growth in this economy is by doing the things that actually drive productivity up. And that's by reforming business taxation. If George Osborne so had been grilled like this 12 years ago, so many lives could have been saved. This is just so frustrating to watch. Innovate more and invest in R&D. Deregulate to take advantage of our Brexit freedoms, creating things like free ports, which I've done but around the country. These are all long term. We're facing a recession now. Yeah, but what we should do is focus on long term growth because that's what we need: sustainable growth, not a sugar rush boom that will make us all feel better for months, but then it runs out of control. 
Then inflation gets set into the system. Then the Bank of England has to react with even higher interest rates. That's not a good situation for anybody, and we should be very careful about doing things that make that more likely. Just finally, before I come on, are you saying that the Bank of England would continue to increase rates even if we were in a recession? The Bank of England's would job it? is to manage inflation and inflation yeah. expectations. Are you saying it would do that? Oh, the Bank of England is independent. But I think it's pretty so clear. So you don't know. I mean, you can but, change but, the rules that govern it. But if inflation is high... Lots of people say they should have a target of inflation and a target of growth and a target of unemployment. England will act forcefully, in their own words, to control that. You'll solve the inflation problem if you put us into a recession. Let me ask you this, though, on the on the tax rise. Andrew, Andrew, Andrew. No, no, no. This is important because it's about families. Because it was clear we were heading for a painful cost of living crisis early this year. You could see it coming, but you could see it coming at the end of last year. But the taxes you chose to raise national insurance and freezing income tax thresholds, they reduced people's take-home pay and made the cost of living crisis even worse. I also chose to raise taxes on the largest companies in this country. Oh, you're not doing that till next year. Yeah, and, and, and that's going to raise more money than the things no, but why that you did, mentioned. Why right? did because you I think all the wonks at the time said he should have done income tax, not national insurance. That would have been more progressive because income tax also taxes people for assets, not just for work. He chose to only tax workers. Not the affluent retired, not those living on investment income. They don't pay national insurance. You penalise workers. Well, no, actually what I did was try and fix the problems that we've got and do it in the fairest way possible. And actually, freezing thresholds, which you mentioned, is a policy mm. that I put in, in place. In a way that doesn't upset is, is my homeowner base. Without affecting people's cash take-home pay. And it's an entirely progressive measure, Andrew. And independent, all the independent oh. experts and commentators oh. described it as progressive why, at the time. Why because is those it with progressive? The broader, but because those with the broader shoulders contribute by, more. By That's free, what happens when you freeze thresholds. By freezing thresholds, at a time when inflation is rising, you have dragged very low earners into the 20% tax bracket. And before they I'm didn't actually with Rishi Sunak on this you one. You dragged them into the basic rate of tax for the first time. I don't think freezing the thresholds is Why that, is that bad. Fair? Because freezing thresholds means that those with the broader shoulders contribute the I'm most. I'm talking about it, the lowest paid. Well, the lowest paid have They're benefited tax from the tax cuts that I've put in place. Actually, for the two million lowest paid in this country who move off welfare and into work, they benefited from a very significant tax cut that I put in place. And just this month, we raise the threshold that those workers that you're talking about start paying any tax on national insurance at all. They are that's now a tax paying cut that is worth tax pounds a year. Yeah, that's before you take into account the rise in national insurance as well. Yeah, but, but, but let, let Andrew, me... Andrew, also, look, so the, that way to raise money is undoubtedly, objectively progressive. Now, you might say you don't need to raise any money and we'd rather just have higher borrowing. That's a completely reasonable position. But if you take the position that we do need to raise the money, I think that is a fair way to do it, alongside asking the largest companies to contribute more as well. Uh, and it was described as progressive at the time. But I do want to cut taxes for people in work, which is why under my plans, we will deliver the first income tax cut in 16 years in this parliament that I've paid for and put in my plans, because hard work is something that I want to reward. And as prime minister, I want to go further. Raising national insurance and reducing income tax is, is not progressive. Income tax is, is way more progressive than national work. insurance. So this, this idea, this is a progressive idea, is is stupid. Nine million people will be paying the higher 40% tax rate. One in four tax payers will be in a tax bracket originally meant for only 
top earners like yourself. How is that Tory all fair? Because 75% of people under your numbers, the vast majority of people, will be paying the basic rate of tax. That's the low and middle earners, and that's why I'm but delivering a tax cut for those people. Again, I'm actually with Sunak, not Andrew Neil, on this one. The issue is, even if you get brought into the higher tax band, it doesn't. You don't get taxed all of your income at forty percent. You only get taxed the income above whatever the threshold is now. Is it forty k, forty two k? So, so it's not like suddenly you get this huge tax bill. You're taxed on that extra bit of money that you know, essentially, compared to everyone else, you don't really need. The that I'm trying to deliver is inspired by what he did, which is to have a broad base and lower rates. And that's why I want to cut income tax in this parliament well, for the first time in 16 years. And as prime minister, over time, as we grow the economy and get to grips with public spending, I want to go further on cutting income tax because I want to reward hard work. Let's look at another tax in judgment. In February, you told the Commons that cutting VAT on energy bills would, these are your words, disproportionately benefit wealthier households. Now, as your campaign fails to gain traction among Tory members, you propose to suspend VAT on energy bills. It's not just bad judgment, it's lack of consistency. No, absolutely not. I've always said from the beginning that as we knew more about what energy bills would actually be in the autumn, that I would stand ready to do more. We've already announced, and I announced as Chancellor, it can't suddenly be become progressive when it wasn't progressive before. That that's, that doesn't follow. I understand no, that. But now, so what's but changed? You argued Hang against on. VA so let, cutting VAT. Andrew, Andrew, I'm here to answer your questions. Let me just finish the question. So what's changed since then? What's changed is energy bills are now forecast to be a few hundred pounds higher than we had estimated when I announced that support. So it's reasonable for the government to respond by providing a bit more support where it can, accepting that it can't solve all problems. And this is one of the few levers available to government to pull quickly to get support to millions of people. If I become prime minister at the beginning of September and energy bills go up in October, there is no time to, to design something else that would be a more perfect way of helping people. You've got to work with what you've got. And actually, VAT is one of, it is a blunt instrument. I stick by what I said. No, you but, said it disproportionately benefits yeah, the wealthy. And, and, and it does, but it provides support to everybody. And if you've got four weeks after becoming prime minister to put in place a policy that will help 30 million households, this is pretty much the only lever left. So, so that's, that's all you're going to do? It comes on top of providing £1,200 of support already for the, the VAT cut was a Labour policy, so you can either see that as a victory for Labour or something that makes Labour's life difficult because their one key policy has now been taken by the Tories. You can look at it either way. And you have to remember, I stood up in May. I stood up in May when we had an estimate from Ofgem about what would happen to the price cap in October, right. which at that point we expected to be £2,800. It's going to be and, over 3000 And that's why, on top of the support that I announced in May to kick in in autumn and winter, I said we, I would do more. And the easiest way to do more, accepting that it's but, not perfect, is to reduce VAT on energy. But hold so, on. so there is already support in place for the autumn and winter, but we need to do more. And that is the easiest thing to do. And look, Andrew, I've been also, in government. It's also it, it, Marginal, Mr. Sunak, because energy bills are going to go up by about another thousand pounds this October, and, and that's that's why yeah, I announced support. That's why I announced support worth you, one thousand two hundred pounds. Yeah, but now it's going up to three and a half thousand pounds. It's about one hundred and fifty pounds for the average uh, bill. It barely touches the side. It, bills it, will still go up by eight fifty. It comes on top. This of, is, by the way, why Labour's policy was kind of shit. Announced for the autumn and winter, which is worth up to one thousand two hundred pounds for the most vulnerable families. Yeah. So it's additional to that, Andrew. 
And, and the reason it's additional is because we knew bills were going to go up. I announced support to help, but now the situation is worse and I'd like to do more. And this is the easiest lever that government can pull. It's yeah. not perfect. I'm not going to pretend that it is perfect. But at this point, if I became prime minister in September, you'd have weeks to put in place help. This is the only lever available. It, it wasn't just uh, suspending VAT and energy bills that you opposed. Uh, you also opposed the windfall tax, though like your VAT change, you finally said, I'll have a windfall tax. I mean, Shell has made a record $20 billion in the first half of this year alone. $20 billion. It's done multi-billion buyback of its own shares. I mean, there's a win windfall if ever there was one. You were wrong to oppose that, weren't you? They deserve a windfall tax. Uh, they do, and I put one in place. And you were against it. And, and the situation changed. And when the well, facts why changed, change? you knew that the, no, the, the no, windfall not, profits were coming. Uh, we, we, we did not know how high and how long oil prices would stay at those levels for. And when it was clear that this situation was going to last longer and be more severe, I took the decision, which, by the way, lots of people criticized me for and disagreed with. I took the decision that it was The problem right is he keeps saying the facts change, so his ideas change. But actually, he, in each case, he had a principled objection. So before he said, in principle, he's against windfall taxes. He also said, in principle, he's against cutting VAT. Then he says, the facts change, but the principle didn't change. I think in both cases, he kind of came to the right decision, by the way, but that's besides the point. But then you had to come back and raise the threshold for national insurance to, to cut it uh, a little wait, bit. On corporation tax, you've got all sorts of incentives to mitigate the raise. I mean, you just seem to be all over the place. On no, tax. actually, that's what tax reform looks like, Andrew. This is so tax let's, reform. Yeah, let's talk it's about corporate no, tax reform. No, let's talk about corporation tax, which you mentioned there at the end of your list. I'm trying to move to a system that means that we are internationally competitive, but also that we actually encourage the types of activity that drive growth and productivity. And that system means we have a higher rate, which is still, by the way, the lowest in the G7, the fourth lowest in the G20, exempt small Maybe businesses. Maybe make it a bit the, higher then. Combined with tax incentives, big tax cuts, for business investment in capital and yeah. business investment you've in R&D. That is a reform. massive tax cuts. That, that, is, a reform, that is a reform of the tax system have which now. will drive growth and productivity. And investments flatlining. Yeah, because we've also had Omicron in the middle of all of that. It's flatlining now as well. We're over that. It's still flatlining. Because there's a I mean, lot of flatline for the past 12 years because of terrible Tory policy. Yeah. And if you talk to businesses, that's your tax. Uh, well, hang on. If you talk to businesses, why don't you talk to the CBI okay. and businesses and ask them what they think would make the difference to their business investment? Do you know what they say? Okay. They say that if you cut the tax on business investment, we will invest more. That's what business says. That's well, what they've said to me. Good luck to see if we do that. You justified yeah. raising taxes. Uh, to good luck to see if I talk to businesses. That's not, it doesn't seem like a particularly yeah, good admission for a journalist. <laughs> good luck cash. to you. I'm obviously not going to speak to anyone affected. <laughs> that would be crazy. At the start of this year, they're now 6.7 million, and they're heading to over 9 million by 2024. So you broke a manifesto pledge not to raise taxes for extra cash for the NHS, and waiting lists are still set to rise 50%. Do you know that when you stumped up the cash? You, first of all, you talked about manifesto pledges, Andrew, right? And you pick on that one. You know when our manifesto... That's the one you broke. Well, well, you know in our manifesto, we also said that we would have debt lower at the end of the parliament than the beginning. 
We also said that we wouldn't borrow for day-to-day -day spending. What's the, my so I think, question no, no, well, no. was, what, well, no, why no, is no. this money not making any difference? You, you, you made a very pointed comment about breaking manifesto promises. Deal without, with the NHS. Without, and I will in a second. The money is without making a difference. The problem is that they didn't invest in it for 12 years. It's kind of a stupid... How come you've given the NHS extra money and it's still got these waiting lists? Because you need to train the doctors, you need to train the nurses. Who's to blame for that? George Osborne, David Cameron, all people Sunak supported. That's what he should be challenged on. We weren't, but we also weren't able to keep the manifesto promise on borrowing and debt, and I'm also trying to prioritise that. But let's turn to the NHS, because you're absolutely right. Why are right. winning this going to be right. close to 10 so, million? So, I, I, look, I completely agree. It's right that we fund the NHS properly, but it's equally important that we get the reform we need so we get value for money out of that. And that's why I've published a plan, a comprehensive plan to help tackle the waiting list. It will be one of my priorities as Prime Minister to get to grips with them. There's a range of things so we can do. What's the major thing you would do? Well, structurally, I would set up a task force approach to dealing with it. So a task force is going to get waiting list done. Well, well, there are 10 million people on them in two well, years' time. Well, it, it was a task force that helped us get the vaccine rollout going, Andrew. That so was I would, a much I, more specific issue. Well, no, no, well, actually, this is also a specific issue. What we oh. need to do is create more elective surgical hubs because they are an efficient way to cut through the elective You're surgery. You're going to create how many? Oh, we're going to create over 100. Right. And, and that's going to make it, that's going to get the waiting list yes, down. It, yeah, yes, it will, Andrew, because if you do elective Train surgery, more doctors in and a nurses, please. dedicated unit, it's far more productive than doing it inside of hospitals. There, there I'll are... tell you what you asked. Let me tell you the other things we're going to do. We're no, I thinking... just wanted the main one. Well, it's not, there's, not, there's not just one he's thing. He's not happy, is he? Yeah, com these are complex problems. Looks a bit like he's going to cry now, actually. No, just three... one simple solution. No, but there are problems that got worse under your government's reign. There are now 300,000 people uh, Andrew, waiting. Andrew, let's just remember, I, I also left the government, yeah, and now I want to change... Days, only a few days uh, yeah, ago. Well, I want to do things differently. There As are, Prime Minister, I want to bring grip to this problem. There are 300,000 people. Many of them watching this programme, perhaps. 300,000 people have been on a waiting list for a year or more. Mm. What are you going to do about that? Yes, I think that's unacceptable. Would you wait for a year? No, I think this is unacceptable. Many people watching are probably... <laughs> he would go private. He's worth £730 million. Pounds. <laughs> yes, and they shouldn't have to. Numbers. Yeah, and that's what I've said and very clearly. That's why I've set out a plan. It was one of the first policy announcements of my campaign. Okay. We need more elective surgical hubs. We need more community diagnostic centres. We need to use technology to cut through all the way that we do the actual appointment scheduling to free up clinicians' time. And we need to make sure that we call out poor leadership in the NHS because there are great examples of good leadership and they know how to do it and we should learn okay. from them. We've got I will bring the same grip and urgency that I brought to helping this country get through the pandemic, delivering things like further right. record time. That's fine. I will bring that to gripping the NHS waiting okay. list problem as well. I mean, he's We've not going to because he's going to lose. Yeah. Let's look at another matter. Sending illegal migrants to, uh, migrants to oh, Rwanda. God. None has gone so far. But you've said you'll get it, quote, off the ground and operating at scale. That's your words. Since Rwanda says it has capacity for only 200, how would you do that? That's what the initial capacity is about. And this is a pilot program that we've negotiated with Rwanda at it's first. It's cost 120 million. Yes. And we need to make well, sure that, that we get value for that, well, which means we need to make it work. That's 600,000 per migrant. It would be cheaper to send them to board at your old public school in Winchester. Yeah. So what we need to do is make sure that the deterrent effect of this program deters thousands of people from coming across the channel into the UK. Because you know what, how much we're spending today on hotels? Five million pounds a day. You're about housing. to spend 600,000 per head if you ever do Maybe get anyone to go to we should have built some social housing. A bit of spare what capacity there would have helped. Up and running 
And then if we can get it up and running and successful, and it will serve as a strong deterrent effect, we then won't there's, have tens of thousands of people coming here, which no, are costing us no five million. It's a deterrent effect. Yeah, it's that, not going to work as a deterrent unless you send everyone, because people are willing to take very, very big risks to get here because they're fleeing persecution, right? And if we can make that policy work, which is the right thing to do, because we do have to tackle this issue, then it, if it means that tens of thousands of people are not We don't have here, to tackle this issue. This is not an issue. The practice I'm, I'm worried about. Now, you also want a cap, even on vi valid asylum seekers who come here legally. Do you have any legal advice that that would not be against international law? Yes, I think Parliament rightly should be sovereign about matters. No, but if you had legal advice that that would not be against international law? No, I don't, I don't believe Good it question. would be. Well, but if you had legal Why? advice? Well, I, I, I'm not in government at the moment, Andrew, so I can't get advice from the Attorney well, General. you can. This, yeah, this, 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 this is awash with lawyers. You're rich enough to hire a lawyer, Rishi Suno. But it is. And I think this is, you bring it, up a broader problem, right? So we clearly have a problem with human rights law in this country that is making it difficult for us to achieve our objectives. That's why we're passing a British Bill of Rights, which will help with all of these things. That's why I've suggested moving away from the ECHR definition right. of asylum the to Geneva the Refugee Convention, convention definition, that, That's not going to let you do a cap. Standard, but <laughs> narrower. If we do these things, we will be able to make progress on this, this problem. But I'm not going to pretend it's easy. This, this is, is a complicated problem. Is there not something unsavoury about the son of a successful middle-class migrants prepared to turn away asylum seekers with a valid claim? No, there is nothing wrong about that. And it's in fact because I am that person. You come here legally. Yes, it's because my family and millions like them were welcomed here legally. This country but has that, a... You're changing the law. This country has <laughs> you know, a you're going to make more people illegal. But it is right that that process is legally... That is I'm against legal migration, so I'm going to make more migrants illegal, is essentially what he's saying. Even legal asylum seekers. Because there is a there is a finite amount of asylum seekers that we can integrate and accommodate. And I think most reasonable people would agree with that. And it's totally, of course, at any moment in time, Andrew, there are probably a billion people that would love to move to the UK. This is an amazing We grant asylum at a way, way lower rate than nearly everyone else in Europe. So this idea that there's, there's a limit to how many people we can grant asylum to is the most disingenuous piece of bullshit that politicians repeatedly spout and get away with, actually. Your supposedly ordinary origins, your background. So why, were, when you were young, did you say you had no working class friends? I mean, Andrew, we, we all say silly things when we're students, but I've talked about my background. My family, as you said, were welcomed no, here as migrants. No, we know that. I feel like I almost know them personally myself. Should have shown you the clip. Well, so it was I'm just glad. wrong when you, you said that. You know, I'm glad. I, I grew up working in my mum's pharmacy, No, no, as we you know all that. And, and, no, you, and you don't grow that. up doing that unless you actually interact with lots of people. And I spent my time making sure that we served our community. And my parents worked incredibly hard to provide right. opportunities for me. And that's ultimately why I want to be Prime Minister, Andrew, because this country allowed my family I to provide a better that. opportunity in future I'm for me. Wondering. And as Prime Minister, I want to do the same thing for everybody. I just thought some of their background is so humble as you as why they didn't have working class friends. But let's move on. <laughs> on judgment. <laughs> Was it not bad judgment to think you could be Chancellor residing in Downing Street and yet your wife could remain a non-dom for tax purposes? Well, let's take a step back. I'm the one running for office and not my wife. But no, we I'm talking about when you were Chancellor. Yeah, but we, I'm the one running for office and not my wife. But we took, my wife is also from abroad. I understand. And in over several months ago, we addressed this thing and she resolved the situation. Well, she made her own. She, she addressed the situation and made a statement about it. 
And I fully being support a non-dom is not automatic. You have to apply. When she realised it. it was a political so problem, she instructed her very expensive lawyer to change the situation somewhat. Up their taxes. Your family was enjoying millions in tax exemptions. No, my, my wife was following the rules that applied to her situation. Only because she had applied to be a non-dom. You, you are you are an, a non-dom as a matter of law. How you choose no, to file your you, taxes is a choice. You, you can and she choose not rules. to be a non-dom as a matter of, of tax status. Uh, no, that's, that's just simply not right. You can choose to how you but file your tax not returns. British tax. You yes, can choose not to take advantage of being a non-dom. Because she is not from... She, is from she a chose law. to take advantage of being a non-dom. And, and she does pay British tax and always has on all her British earnings. Oh, yes, which is the non-dom. Yeah, and, and look, on, she, on she, cho she chose to resolve it that situation. It just seems a judgment, wasn't it? Well, she, she chose to resolve that situation. And these things, as I discovered and learned myself, are difficult when it comes to your family. But I've learned from that okay. experience. And I'm confident that that I experience understand. has actually made me Twen better suited to now lead. 20 seconds. When you look at all this that we've talked about tonight, can you assure the people watching tonight that you have the experience to be prime minister? in a few seconds. People have seen me lead this country's economy through some incredibly challenging times over the past two years. They see me do it well. They've seen me do it with compassion. And I will bring exactly those okay. same qualities to running this country as prime minister. Rishi Sunak, we thank compassion, you. Compassion, uh, the guy who's going to put a cap on refugees, which yeah, Andrew Neil is right, it's completely against international law. Us, uh, she declined our invitation. Her choice, of course. But that invitation still remains open. So a few things to say about that. So I suppose the first is obviously that interview will not have saved Rishi Sunak's campaign. I mean, he was behind when he went into that interview. He was definitely going to be behind coming out of it. I suppose the only thing you can say to his advantage is it was a tough interview and, you know, he came out of it alive. For me, though, the, the bigger issue here is what is so frustrating about the conversation we're witnessing right now politically. Because I don't know if you were around in 2010 or 2015. But in those two elections, and even to some extent in 2017, even though the Labour Party, I think, quite successfully you know, managed to move beyond it, what you had was you had Tory politicians who were saying, we can't possibly go into debt. We have to get rid of the deficit. Then you had some people on the left saying, this is silly. We have lower debt than many other countries. What we can do is put this debt into the long term. The more important thing is we invest in the economy so that we have some growth. We don't need to throw hundreds of thousands of people into destitution, right? And then what did you have? You had the media, you had the newspapers, you had people like Andrew Neil saying, George Osborne is right, we do need to get down the debt. Labour, you're incredibly irresponsible with money, of course we need to get down the debt. No one challenged the complete lie that the financial system of a, or the financial situation of a country is the same as a credit card. Now, you have two conservatives. You've got one who's saying the most important thing to do is get the debt down, Rishi Sunak. You've got someone else, Liz Truss, who's saying, actually, we don't need to get the debt down. She's a Tory, so they're taking her seriously. But also, she's saying, we don't need to get the debt down. Let's have tax cuts. So when there were people opposing austerity because they wanted people to you know, have enough money that they could live on, no one took them seriously. Now you've got someone saying, we, we don't need to get the deficit down. I want to use that to give people tax cuts. Suddenly, she's now in prime position to be next prime minister. It's just how people play on, on completely different playing fields. One final thing to say is how frustrating it was to see sort of Rishi Sunak say, we have to have a limit on, on refugees, which Andrew Neil is completely right, against international law, when it comes to a state's responsibility to accept asylum seekers, if they've got a valid claim, you have to accept them. You can't say, oh, you've got a valid claim, but you can't come in because we're full up. There's no basis for that in international law whatsoever. But also what I wish Andrew Neil had put to Rishi Sunak is this idea, there's a limit of how many people we can take. 
Because if you look at asylum grants per 10,000 population in 2020, Greece, 32 asylum grants per 10,000 of the population. Spain, 10 per 10,000 of the population. Germany, for every 10,000 Germans, they gave eight grants of asylum. The UK, two, two. So it's so pathetic, this idea that, oh, France is emptying its population of migrants. They're all coming here. It's a complete lie and it does not get called out enough. Andrew Neil didn't call it out. He did call out Rishi Sunak on some reasonable things there. He let him slip on a bunch of others. We are going to wrap up there. We will continue to be giving you commentary on the rest of this race. As I say, it does look like Liz Truss is going to be the next prime minister. So we'll probably be focusing more on what she has to say, what we can guess about a, a Liz Truss administration. Have a fantastic weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.